I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 13, and we are breaking the pattern of revelation for uh, one Sunday, and I'm going to share with you this morning a uh, sermon that is not scripted the same kind of way I normally do things under the title, The First Lesson of the Church. And I'm doing this mainly because I'm just sort of focusing on the fact that the Lord is growing our church right now. And I thought it would be nice to press the pause button for a second in Revelation, although there are, there are some themes here that you'll see will connect with what we've been talking about. But to sort of press the pause button there and ask the question, what are we doing as the church? What does God want us to do? What is the Lord's will for us as the body of Christ? And, and maybe none of these things will be new information, but we need to be reminded. We forget. We have short memories. And so I think the Lord has this wonderful lesson for us here. And I'm going to begin reading reading here in John 13, and we'll read down through verse 5 to get us started here this morning, where John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Jesus, uh, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, there are certain lessons that all of us were likely taught from our very earliest moments. I mean, even before we took our first steps, or maybe your children took their first steps, you were already in some way trying to instruct them in these basic behaviors that will actually make them pleasant people to be around someday. For instance, say please. Don't hit people. Don't shove people. Don't take their toys. Share what you have with others. Say you're sorry if you hurt someone. Be quiet. Be kind. Listen to mommy and daddy, and so forth. These are basic life lessons that every child starts with so they can learn to be courteous, responsible people. It's because these are not childish behaviors. We don't teach the children because they're children behaviors. These are adult behaviors. Being considerate of others, obeying authority. I mean, think about how difficult our lives would be if people were never taught these basic things. Imagine going to the grocery store with random people, grown adults, shoving you and pushing you and running up and taking your stuff out of your cart and sticking their tongue out and calling you names or saying, mine. We we don't expect that. If that started happening to you in the grocery store, you'd think you were in the twilight zone or something because this isn't normal. This isn't how people behave. You couldn't function in a world like that where normal people were not taught polite behaviors of society. So instinctively, We teach our children from the time they're first conscious of their own existence how they're supposed to behave as functioning adults. In the same way, there's a lesson 
that Jesus first taught his infant church. And a lesson that's so basic that should follow us through our lives as believers and define who we are as his people. And in fact, if we fail to learn this lesson, we are not functioning in the basic manner that the Lord wants us to function as his children. And in fact, we will ever remain infants who have not yet reached a basic understanding of how to behave with others. And that lesson that we could call the first lesson of the church this morning is the act of washing one another's feet. Now, why do I call this the first lesson lesson of the church? I, I admit it seems a little arbitrary. After all, the New Testament church begins in Acts 2, I mentioned that earlier, where Jesus pours out his spirit. But I think if you're following what John says about the ministry of Jesus in the gospel, we can see that Jesus is teaching some specific lessons in John 13 that form the foundational teaching of the church. And first, we have to understand that Jesus has been preaching for most of his public ministry that the kingdom of God is going to come. But it is not a kingdom that comes from normal means as kingdoms rise up on earth. Someone gathering together an army and overthrowing the current ruler and taking over territory. Jesus is going to tell Pontius Pilate in John 18 that his kingdom is not going to come from the world like that. In fact, We've seen recently in Revelation how that kingdom is going to come, right? Revelation 19, Jesus is going to come in the clouds with an army of his conquerors from heaven, and together they will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. And the only way to be able to enter this kingdom is to be born again through faith in Jesus. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I thought about this morning. The fact that Nicodemus is going to be one of those people on the white horse coming and seeing the kingdom of God as a born-again believer. So all throughout John's gospel, John does something unique from the other gospel writers. He presents Jesus as one who is showing signs to the people of Israel that they can trust him as this glorious coming king. John in his gospel does not refer to them as miracles. He refers to them as semea, signs. He's unique in this way. A sign is pointing to something else. A sign may be an amazing thing, it could be a small thing, but it's always pointing to something more significant. And in John's gospel, Jesus presents these signs to people publicly to show them that he really is the Messiah, their king. And if they repent of their sins and embrace him for salvation, he will uh, come and save them. And through faith, they can be part of his family and they will inherit the kingdom. Jesus isn't going to gather an army together and try to overthrow Rome. I mean, even if they were successful, it would only result in yet another human kingdom ruled over by people with fallen hearts and fallen minds. That's why in John chapter 6, after Jesus performed one of the signs, remember this, feeding the 5,000, they try to take him by force and make him king. And immediately, it says Jesus got away from the situation. He sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, and he went up into a mountain alone got out of the situation because that's not the way he was going to build his kingdom the kingdom wouldn't come that way it would come first by gathering the subjects of the kingdom by faith the one who can save them from the real enemy of the kingdom is jesus who will save them not from rome but but sin but from sin and death 
and Satan, as we've seen in Revelation. So there are seven signs that John presents in the Gospel of John in the first 12 chapters. And what I'm calling signs this morning are only those places where John in his Gospel, if you study it very carefully, you'll see John only calls these seven events signs. When we study them, we realize that they're always public events. They're not just for Jesus' disciples privately, but for their, they're for people in the, the general Jewish and Gentile community, pointing to, Jew, to, to who Jesus is and what he's going to do for them. In chapter 2, Jesus turns the water into wine. And he cleanses the temple and says, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, what, what, what sign are you going to give us that, that what you're saying is true? That's when he says, I'll destroy the, temp, uh, destroy the temple and I'll raise it up. And, and the disciples didn't understand the significance of that until after the resurrection. And they said, aha, that's what he was talking about. In chapter 4, he heals the nobleman's son. Chapter 5, he heals the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. Chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. In chapter 9, he heals the man who was born blind. In chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Every one of these events is referred to as a sign in John's gospel. Now, there are a lot of other amazing things Jesus did, and we don't read all of them in John. We, we read some of them in the other Gospels. But John is singling out specific events and giving a lot of information about them because he's trying to demonstrate something. He's trying to show that in spite of the signs that Jesus used to demonstrate to, their, to his people that they can put their faith in him and he will save them, as a nation, they rejected him. And what we begin to see as we read these first 12 chapters of john is that there's this initial excitement about following jesus but as they discern what he's actually saying to them what he's asking them to do many of the disciples walk away and they don't follow him anymore this is where jesus turns to the 12 and say and they say are you also going to leave and peter says where else are we going to go you alone have the words of life jesus's crowd began to shrink jesus would not have been one of the guys asked to speak at the church growth convention back in his day okay because he would always see his crowd shrinking and here as we pick up the gospel story in john 12 and for our purposes this morning there's so much more that i would love you to see but but we're just going to have to confine to what my my purpose in in the in the preaching the sermon is this morning we're going to we're going to start in verse 35 of john chapter 12 where we find what is technically Jesus' last public statement to this baffled crowd of Jews standing before him who are still doubting who he really is. Jesus is going to say something else at the end of John 12. I think that's a summary of some of his teaching that John puts there in the narrative. But here is where he, he says something to them, and it really technically is his last statement publicly in the Gospel of John. Jesus said to them, that, uh, the, the light is among you for a little while longer He'd already said, I am the light of the world. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, John says, they still did not believe in him. And this is not a mild rejection. Later in chapter 19, Pontius Pilate, standing beside Jesus, who had already been flogged and was bleeding, the purple robe on him, the crown of thorns on his head, 
presents Jesus to the bloodthirsty crowd who want to crucify him. And Pilate says to them in verse 15 of John 9, technically he says, are you sure you want to crucify your king? Do you remember how they answer? We have no king but Caesar. Utter rejection. So what we're seeing here in John 12 is the close of Jesus' public ministry in which he presented himself as savior and king to his people because they would not believe. And so Jesus withdraws from the crowds. And what we have in chapter 13 is something really unique. He gathers together then the small community of men who are following him. And he begins to teach them essential lessons that would be immediately necessary for them to lay the foundation of the church after he departs. That's what's going on here in John's gospel. And he tells them many things that night as recorded for us in chapters 13 through 16. He speaks of union with him. He speaks of sending the Holy Spirit, both of which are vital foundational teachings for the church. But first, he teaches them something about their relationship with one another. Now, I want to insert something here as an aside from the other Gospels about this occasion in John 13 that makes this even more interesting. The disciples weren't happy with one another at this time. Uh, And we learned that from reading Matthew and Mark in particular. Some of the disciples were pressuring Jesus for special seats of authority in the kingdom that he was going to set up. That They were eyeing those thrones. They wanted to be on the right hand and the left. Remember, he said you're going to be on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. And they imagined Jesus on the center throne, six of them on either side, you know. And and they they wanted to be to the the closest they could be because that would obviously be the the better seat of authority. So they're already jockeying for power, for, for special places of rule. And when they're reclining in the upper room for the Passover meal, there's probably still some tension going on and some frustration because they want to rule and Jesus isn't giving out those positions yet, it seems. And what's more, they're still waiting for him to rise up and put down Roman authorities and establish the kingdom. And in the midst of this scenario with the disciples wanting power and they're at the, at the meal, Jesus quietly gets up from the ground. Of course, you, know, you see all the pictures of the disciples at the Last Supper and all sitting there at a table in their chairs. That didn't come till much later in history. They're reclining on the floor like you see in a lot of Eastern cultures today. And, and, and they, would, they would sit there on their elbow and they would share a meal together and Jesus stands up and he sets aside his outer garment and He wraps a towel around him, which was the symbol of a slave. Remember in Revelation, he has the golden sash around his chest. That meant regal authority. Here he has a towel around his waist. That meant you were serving. And he took a basin of water and he bent down and he began to wash the disciples' feet, which would have been sticking out in the back around the room. He would go around and be at the end of them washing each one of their feet. Now, let me tell you something about foot washing really quickly. Foot washing, to us, seems like a pretty dirty task. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of of foot washing before. It's actually a part of the liturgy in some religious traditions. So it kind of seems maybe gross to us, something like that. But to a Jew, it was an abomination to wash feet. In the law, a foreign slave could be asked to wash the feet of the master, but the Jewish slave, the the, the free-born Jewish slave who had maybe sold himself into slavery could not ask to to do that, could not be asked to do that. It was considered the most menial task 
One exception, people would wash their children's feet. Well, we love our children. We do all kinds of things for them, don't we? And some of us are, are pretty grossed out by things as we, we grow up. But as soon as you have kids, all of a sudden it's like you can embrace them and go through all this, this terrible stuff. But you don't care because you love them. They're your children. And husbands and wives actually would wash each other's feet as an act of devotion and expression of love with one another. But you wouldn't just wash somebody else's feet. And the disciples are aghast. And you can say, you, you can just feel the tension when you read the story with this in mind. You could hear a pin drop. It's utterly silent. Jesus gets to Peter, as we know the story, right? And when he gets to Peter. Peter can't stand the silence anymore. Peter basically says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, you have to appreciate the way language works back then. I mean, when you read the Greek text, uh, whenever you want to emphasize something, you repeat words, okay? And, and if I could render this literally, he basically says, Lord, you my wash the feet, you know, and, and, which are, there are extra words there that you wouldn't normally use, but he's really emphasizing, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I am doing, you don't understand, but afterward you will understand, verse 8. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And literally, you could read it, you will not not wash my my feet (laughs) unto the ages. That's what Peter says. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you don't have a share of me. And then Peter changes his mind and said, well, wash my whole body then. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you only need your, your feet washed. And so Jesus finishes washing Peter's feet. And he, and he gets finished. And down in verse 15, if you'll notice, he basically says to them, actually, uh, let, let's look at verse 12 at the end. He says to them, do you know what I've done to you? Do you understand this? He says in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. In fact, I'm the king. I'm, I'm going to rule over this kingdom. They've been looking forward to that. They, they have Jesus in the center. He's on that main throne. The, the other six on either side go out like this. That's what they're envisioning. He said, that's right. I'm that person. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. And of course, Jesus isn't talking just about washing feet. He's talking about whatever those menial tasks are you do for one another to show that love for one another and serve one another. That's the first lesson of the church. That's the basic 101 training of how to follow Jesus in this new community that he's preparing for when he brings the kingdom. And the lesson is that it's not about having power It's not about having authority. It's not about recognition. There's no Christian ladder to climb, especially a gateway. I mean, you're at the top already, okay? There's nothing nothing else that's on. You you get a mug, okay? Uh, But, but, you know, other than that, there's there's not much else going on. Jesus Christ is the big deal here. There's no such thing as a higher Christian and a lower Christian. Even those who are called to lead the church are simply called to to say, come along as we follow Jesus Christ. We create illusions of superiority in our political systems of Christianity. We shouldn't, but that's what happens because because we want to be like other people. 
the idea that we can have recognition or be in the in crowd or have some kind of position where people admire us, that is antithetical to what Jesus intended. This kind of thing doesn't exist in the church. It exists in the world. In fact, in one of these conversations where the disciples wanted to be on the right hand or the left, I'm thinking of Matthew 20 here. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 20 called them into a huddle afterwards and he told them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But then he says in Matthew 20, 26, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, literally your slave. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, that is going to be Jesus' ultimate illustration with this lesson. Tonight, he's washing their feet. He's performing the most menial task for them personally that they could be imagining. But the next day, what's going to happen? They are going to be horrified and scattered as Jesus performs an even baser, more menial task beyond what they could have comprehended, he is going to be humiliated in the worst way, devised and torturously executed and spill out his life for them as their servant. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus took upon himself the form of a slave and humbled himself unto death, even, even death on the cross. And Jesus is about to explain to them in the following chapters that he is going away. We call this the farewell discourse in John's gospel. And he tells them in John 16, 32, that they're about to be scattered, each one to his home, and they will leave him alone. But Jesus knows that if they can get the lesson of washing feet, that is, of making their lives about serving one another, not about serving themselves, that it would bind them together in a way that makes the church unstoppable. That is why the Holy Spirit is a spirit of unity. And when we live by the leading of the Holy Spirit that Jesus poured out onto the church, the Spirit always leads us to serve one another. So Jesus says, I have left you an example that you should also do what I have done to you. It means that the disciples were to look to Jesus and imitate what he did to them and, and do the same to one another. And what it means for us is the same. As the church, we who are uniting around the doctrine that was delivered to us by God through these apostles in the Holy Scriptures, we who are local expressions, we are a local expression at Gateway, in a time and place of the church that the Lord has been building ever since, we are to imitate Jesus Christ. We're to look at Jesus' example and imitate Jesus. Him. In the next few minutes, just in wrapping up, I want to ask the question, what does that mean for us practically? What does it mean to, to imitate him in washing feet? How do we follow Jesus' example and flesh out that example at Gateway Baptist Church? And I'm, I'm going to draw all these from the text. They're not parallel, all of them. They're, they're just the ideas of the text. And the first one is this, love one another. Love one another. Because this expression of service is an expression of love. Look at the very first verse in chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And, and everything it says in those first few verses lead up to, because of all of this, Jesus washes their feet. I want to say something pastoral this morning. It, it's been a complete joy 
to pastor Gateway Baptist Church, in part because it's been so much fun watching the Lord grow his church. And, and nobody is sitting around scheming and saying, hmm, how can we make this happen faster or anything like that? Because most of us don't have the time to do that anyway. In fact, I, I've been telling people a lot that probably the, the Lord is growing the church because I don't have the time to mess it up by thinking too much about it. We, we, we're, just, we're just trying to follow the Lord. I mean, full disclosure, I feel like I've spent most of my pastorate at Gateway surprised that people keep coming back every Sunday and every Wednesday. I can't tell you how many times I would be driving to church on Sunday morning uh, when we were meeting, especially in, in the, the room over there at the, at the other church building, praying for the service and for the people and thinking, there's probably not going to be anybody here this morning, hardly at all. They're probably not going to come back. And then like being so surprised that we had people in the room. I'm not, I'm not making that up. I, 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 that's, the thought process went through my mind a lot. And I'm sure I told a lot of you already about the fact that when we were borrowing these rooms from another church, you had to go through a door on the side and walk down this long hallway before you would find out where Gateway Baptist Church was. And the church uh, that we were renting made us keep that door locked for security. And if you came late, you couldn't get in unless somebody was standing there watching for you at the door. And I feel so sorry for, for Sarah, our, our, uh, our pianist, who is just a wonderful servant of the Lord. The first time she visited Gateway, she couldn't get in. You can ask her about this sometime. She actually texted me later on during the service and said, just so you know, I tried to visit this morning, but I couldn't get in to, to find you. So I think she went home. I mean, I mean, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. But we don't want our visitors to have to do that uh, when, they, when they visit. So I came in one Sunday, and there was a visitor I had never seen before sitting in the room. This is early on in the days of, of pastoring. And, you know, you want to be very pastoral and greet people and say, oh, welcome, and, and one, let, introduce you to some of our members. But out of my mouth came these words without even uh, realizing it before I could stop them. I, I said to her, how did you get in here? <laughs> that was my first thought when I, when I saw this lady. And that's not good church growth policy. But uh, the Lord kept growing us and, and gave us this and now we're, we're looking for another one, and he is adding more people to the body with particular gifts that they would like to exercise here. Even during the pandemic, this is happening, and it's wonderful to see how he's connecting certain gifts to, speci- to specific needs. And I know that you sense this, this growth, this excitement, and it may be one of the things that attracted you to look at Gateway. We're not, it's not big and established, it's kind of new and growing, and there's a lot of natural excitement there, and, and it means we have a lot of catching up to do, a lot of things to get organized. But listen, and I mean this, this spirit of dependence upon the Lord and this expectancy about what he is doing and wanting to be involved and encourage one another and grow together, it is all simply a passing fad in the life of Gateway Baptist Church if we do not truly love one another. It is. It'll go away. The excitement will wear off because we will go through trials and I'm going to make some decisions and you're not going to like them. I'm not trying to. You know, I try to get along with people, but sometimes, you know, you don't like all the decisions some people make. Sometimes committees might make decisions and we, we won't necessarily agree with them. And we'll start being tempted to be petty. What is pettiness? Pettiness is putting too much emphasis on things that do not matter. They're not eternal. They're not the big picture. They're not the mission. Things that have nothing to do with knowing Christ and loving Christ and sharing Christ. 
And we're united together as those who are united to Christ because the Lord wants us to imitate him and love one another because that's what he does. He didn't wash their feet just as something to show off with. He loved them and it drove them, drove him to wash their feet. We're not here to build our own kingdom. We're waiting for Christ's kingdom that we will all be a part of. In the meantime, we have to learn to love one another. And if we do that, we will express the love and actions toward one another of service that Jesus wants us to express. So that leads us to a second point of application. If we want to follow Christ's example, not only do we have to love one another, we have to show that. And so my second thing I would say is we have to take the lead in serving one another. Take the lead in serving one another. Taking leadership in Christ's church isn't about having a position of authority. Taking leadership in Christ's church is about stepping forward to serve one another, even if no one tells you to, because you love one another. Because that's what Jesus did, right? I mean, look back at verse 1. Jesus, having loved them, and then down at verse 4, rose up from supper, laid aside his garments, and began to wash their feet. Nobody asked him to do that. The disciples weren't doing it. They were surprised that somebody did it, especially Jesus. Do you think they might have done it if he had asked them to? Possibly, probably. They would have thought it very strange. They would have thought, well, what's Jesus up to now? Okay, let's go along with this, all right? Let's wash each other's feet. They they would have done it if they were asked to. But Jesus does something that is far more impactful than that. Without any warning, he stands up on the floor where he had been reclining with the others, and he begins to wash their feet. He begins serving them in his own initiative. And there are so many of you who have been examples of this principle, and I love this. I mean, I started to list some examples in my notes of certain acts by some of you even this year, but I I didn't want to actually spoil it by mentioning it publicly because hardly anyone knows what you've done. And this is not to say that we need a kind of church organization where everybody just does what they want to and, and, you know, and, and feels good about that. There is that kind of model of, of church, by the way. We need organization and we need leadership, but there are always needs of people in the body and, and they're not always known. And when you love people, you just go and you want to meet that need. You step out on your own. It drives you to that. That's what taking leadership looks like. It looks like serving one another even by doing difficult things, menial things that no one else will do. And you know what? The Lord will continue to build his church if we're that kind of people following our Lord's example. There's another way we can follow Jesus' example, and I don't want you to miss this. I'm going to put it this way. Serve unbelievers also. Serve unbelievers also. I think, I think John 13 is one of the prime examples I know of of the elephant in the room. Do you already know what I'm talking about? Verse 2, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. And later in verse 18, if you look down there, sadly, after Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And he says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture 
will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then down in verse 21, notice after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they're all like, what? One of you is going to betray you? Who is it? Is it, is it him? And, and John kind of nods over to, uh, or Peter nods over to John, ask him, you know, who it is, because John's like closer to Jesus. And they go through this scenario. And Jesus says, it's the one I give the morsel of bread to in verse 26. And when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said, what you are doing, do quickly. And and if you read the story, the disciples are just, they don't realize that Judas is the one even. They're like, well, maybe Jesus changed the subject and he's sending him out for some other reason. They, they, They couldn't believe it. And it says, after receiving the morsel of bread in verse 30, Judas immediately went out and it was night. And I think that word, it was night, is not just a statement about the lateness of the hour. And the rest of the instruction for this little band of apostles that the Lord would build his glorious church on is not given to Judas. Now they're down to 11. But it should not escape our notice that first, Jesus washed Judas's feet. I always wonder if their eyes met while he was washing Judas's feet. And Judas knew that Jesus, that Jesus knew what was going on. But this was part of the example. We need to be willing to wash the feet of those who do not know Christ so that we can demonstrate his love and that they will come to know him too. But listen, not everybody will come to Christ. But still, we have to wash their feet. We can't think, well, we're going to invest here because I think this person's ready to be saved. So let's, let's do it. No, no. We, we wash people's feet as an example of Jesus' love. I can think of a lot of foot washing that our people did in Hendersonville for people who had great needs throughout the years. And, and I just share the story because it's just in my memory as a pastor. But we, we did foot washing in the form of finding housing, uh, cleaning filthy trailers, lice-ridden trailers, buying food visiting in hospitals, helping homeless people whose lives had been ruined by sin. And sometimes, there's a few times, those people ended up making a profession of faith and they continued in fellowship with us. But a lot of them didn't. Some of them we're going to see on the new earth. Some of them were not. Some of those relationships later on we thought, well, we probably got taken advantage of. But one thing for certain The Lord built us as a body because we were working together to serve others and to show Christ's love to them. We were accomplishing together what the Lord has asked us to do. When we serve the Lord, when we wash the feet in his name, we do so in the midst of a world who have rejected him, right? Jesus leaves and draws them together in the context of the world who said no to him. And sometimes we wash the feet for people who will never turn to him. But this is what the Lord has called us to do. We do it for one another. And as God gives us opportunity, we do it for those who will not turn to him. Finally, I want to say, not only must we love one another and take the lead in serving one another and even be willing to serve unbelievers. Number four, I'm putting this way. We should be satisfied with serving. Satisfied with serving. Because we can all serve really well for a little time. It's true. Especially if it's in the, the thing to do, you know, everybody's serving, let's get involved and let's, let's start working. But it does get tiring, it does get old. We can all love people, at least externally, for a little while, but pretty soon you can't fake it anymore. 
in our flesh, we start wanting commendation. We wonder why somebody keeps getting that opportunity and we don't. We wonder why the pastor forgot to mention the people who served at that event. Or we were overlooked. I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you right away. I apologize for it in advance. I'm going to forget things sometimes like that. And, and, and it, I, don't, I don't want to ever be like, we're going to ignore, I, I want to exalt the service and say, this is, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. We, we need to be thankful to each other, grateful to each other. But sometimes it, it doesn't happen like it should. And this kind of thing is not happening now, as far as I know. I mean, I just, I love the spirit of this body. I'm, I'm just saying that it can happen if we're not finding our satisfaction, our fulfillment, and what Jesus has already called us to do. We need to pray for true humility. We need to pray for true gratitude that we can stay convinced that it's not about the Lord. Or I'm sorry, that it's not about us, but it's about the Lord and about one another because there are going to be things that change. They've been changing and they will continue to change and that's the nature of the church, right? We're not supposed to stay static. We're supposed to be growing and changing and we don't always know how that's going to take shape. If you come into a church and you want it to remain the same because you like it just the way it is, you've got the wrong idea about the church. I remember, uh, uh, again, at Bethany Bible Church, there was these guests that visited, and they just loved the church. They were visiting with some friends, and, and they were from another state. They weren't going to remain there, and they were going to go back that week, and, and they shook, shook my hand afterwards, and they said, we just had a great time here this morning. This is, praise the Lord. He goes, you know what? I'm, I'm praying that this church never grows. That's what he said to me. I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> and uh, because it's perfect just the way it is. Now, now, I get what he was saying. I appreciate that. But that is not practical ecclesiology in, in the New Testament. We don't come in and get upset because there are new people here with new personalities. The, the personality, the mood, the, the way the rhythm is in a church, I can't, I can't put my finger on it, exactly what it is. It just grows and changes because God is changing it all the time through new opportunities and new people. It's not going to stay exactly as it is. In the eyes of the Lord, we trust it's getting better than it was. You know that in some churches, there are people who come in and they get upset because there's a visitor sitting in their pew. I mean, can you imagine that? Some of you are like, yeah, I've seen that happen before. But what has happened at Gateway? I remember when we were outgrowing the room at the other facility, and the only thing we could do is set families inside the extra rooms, and they could kind of listen in through the doorway to the service. That was our first overflow room uh, way back when. No monitor or anything. But I'll tell you what so many families said to me. They said, Pastor, our family is going to sit in the side room this morning to make room for other people. And they weren't showing off. They just wanted to let me know, if, I don't, if you don't see us there, we're here. We're just, we're just over there. We just want to make sure there's enough room if we have guests coming. And, and that is washing feet. That is being a servant. That's what Jesus wants us to do. That's the spirit of how he wants us to grow. We need to practice washing feet washing them in our relationships, washing them in our homes, and learning to wash feet in the church humbly, gratefully, that the Lord has just given us the opportunity to love one another and to serve him through serving one another. And I am praying, and I want you to pray, that the Lord will give us the grace to imitate him as we continue to trust him to build Gateway Baptist Church. Let's pray together.